You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. This evening, we're looking at a letter written by the hand of a man in prison. I've said before that Birmingham is famous for a letter written by a prisoner, Martin Luther King Jr. Thousands of years before King wrote his infamous words, a prisoner in Rome wrote a letter to a church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. The author of the letter to the Colossians was the Apostle Paul. You might wonder how I know he wrote this letter from prison. Just turn to Colossians 4.18. Colossians 4.18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. But as King shows us, Paul's not the only one who ever wrote a letter. In fact, his handwritten letter was not the only one I read this past week. Many of you know that on March 3rd, my godly and dear mother unexpectedly died. And when it came to some of her official documents, like her will, I was struck that she left us funeral instructions. It's very like mom. I was even more struck, beloved, that these instructions were handwritten. One of her documents literally signs off with the phrase, by my own hand, Janice B. Adams. Friends, there's a certain weight that handwritten letters carry. Tweets and other social media posts seem light as feathers compared to a handwritten letter. What will God have us learn from Paul's hand? We'll see in a moment. Before we do, I wanted to share at the onset that we're starting a new series, a sermon series in Colossians. Originally, I had planned to start a topical series on giving, uh, as that beloved uh, is an area of faithfulness, is an area of faithfulness that, frankly, our church needs to grow in. Now, I don't know who gives what, and I will never know. But that said, I still plan to do that series in a couple of months. But over the last few weeks, I thought it'd be wise for you guys to hear a bit more of my preaching first, as you get to know me. And I thought it'd be good for us to just revel in Jesus together for a bit longer. So there's a lot of nuance and instruction I'm going to add about giving in the coming months uh, to encourage us to remember that our money is not our money. It's God's money. And Jesus talked a whole lot about money. It's power. The dangerous love of it. Beloved, we're going to talk about money, not so I or any staff member can get rich, but because you will stand before God one day and explain and give an account for what you did with the resources he entrusted to you. 
Friends, if you want to start giving, there are instructions on the back of your worship guide. I think both versions have it. But beyond accountability, brothers and sisters, there is so much joy when it comes to giving that I don't want you to miss out on. I'm pastorally jealous for you to have that joy. It really is better to give than to receive, Jesus said and Austin prayed. And it's because of Jesus that I'm not sure that this Colossian series is actually all that disconnected from giving. You'll notice on your worship guide, this Colossian series is titled, Jesus is the Best. That's basically the message of Colossians. Paul writes to the Colossians who were deceived about some things and disillusioned with Jesus. Paul writes to them to tell them that Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient. Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient. And what would encourage us to give more than seeing more clearly, loving more deeply the person of Jesus? If he's supreme, he's better than money. If he's sufficient, we can say, have our money. You're enough and you'll provide. Friends, we need Jesus. After all, it's not just been a hard year for me personally. I think it's been a hard year for our church on many levels. And so, beloved, we need to see Jesus afresh by faith. And so did the Colossians. It's funny. Honestly, I didn't really want to preach Colossians. Seemed like a daunting, heady book. But man, then I realized that Paul was writing to a distracted and disillusioned and deceived and discouraged people. Seems perfect for our present moment. Friends, we're not the only ones who needed to see their Savior anew. The Colossians did too. What did Paul tell them? Chapter 1, verse 1 of the handwritten letter to the Colossians. Here we go. And if you're new to the Bible, that big number one is the chapter, the little numbers are the verses. We're going to look at the first 14 verses today. Let, them, let me read them for us now. God's word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, to Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as it indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Beloved, right out of the gate, what does Paul say to a distracted and deceived, a disillusioned and discouraged people? He speaks the word of truth. The gospel. That's what we're staring at tonight. The gospel. And there are two questions Paul raises for us about the gospel. And these are our two points for us this evening. Here is the first. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? Point number one, what does the gospel do? This point will cover chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Friends, what does the gospel do? It produces fruit. It produces fruit, specifically the fruit of love. Look back at our passage. Right right off the bat in verse 1, we meet Paul. He's introducing himself. And the fact that Paul is writing Holy Scripture should arrest us. Uh, Paul, the former religious terrorist who used to harm God's people. Paul, one of the church's greatest enemies, became one of the church's greatest servants. Because... He beheld Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, but Paul got saved. He was changed. And so now instead of raging against the church, Paul now greets the church. I love this in verse 2. Grace, Paul writes, and peace from God our Father. Y'all heard me say it at last week's members meeting. The church isn't like family. It is family. We have one dad. Paul gives greetings from our father, just like Jesus taught us to pray to our father who are in heaven. Friends, this is why unity is a pillar of our church. We're in the same family. One birthed by God. I know I've talked a lot about Paul, but make no mistake, the only reason he's an apostle is because of God. 
Paul says, look with me in verse 1, that he's an apostle. An apostle is a special authoritative representative of Jesus. Paul's an apostle by the will of God. Friends, aren't God's plans surprising? Beloved, I know I've been talking about Paul, but make no mistake, this book, Colossians, like the rest of this Bible, is first and foremost about God, our Father. And by the hand of Paul, our Father writes his children a letter. We've only been in the first two verses. And on one level, these make up a very standard introduction that Paul uses in many of his letters. But do you see, friends, how if we take our time with the text, how if we let the text function not merely as a road to get us somewhere, but as speed bumps that slow us down, we get so much richness out of the text. This is the letter to the Colossians. And in the midst of all the church's problems, what does Paul do first? He thanks God. Verse 3, look with me. We thank God. How often do you thank God, Pastor Paul? Verse 3, look with me. We always thank God. Brothers and sisters, this text is a thank you card written by the man who said, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Even when he's in prison, Paul is thanking God. Friends, how's your gratitude to God? Is it controlled by your circumstances? Friends, if you're struggling to find words to thank God with, borrow someone else's. Use our text. Pray this passage back to God. Ask him to help you believe it. Brothers and sisters, what are you thankful for? Whom are you thankful to? Notice Paul thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he prays for the people. What a pastor Paul was. You'll remember uh, last week, uh, I was a bit like Timothy. I got in a note from Pastor Aaron Gillette uh, that I read to the church at our members meeting. And Aaron talked about how we as elders are trying to pray for y'all more faithfully Uh, So at our elders meeting tonight, we are going to spend a lot of time praying for y'all. That's it. If you ever wonder, what what happens at an elders meeting? We pray for a long time for y'all. Because we're trying to be like Paul in this, who loves his people. And he's heard something about them. He's heard, verse 4 says, about their faith in Jesus and the love they have for all the saints. The saints is just another word for Christian. Friends, the way the Colossians were loving one another, not just people who look like them or voted like them or thought like them, but they loved all the saints. 
Beloved, news of that reached Paul. Friends, the way we the way what we believe becomes visible, the way folks see our faith is by our love. Love for God. Love for our brothers and sisters. Church family, love is the shoes faith puts on to travel. And what motivates this faith and love is hope. Verse 5, the hope laid up for you in heaven. A certain confidence that this world isn't all there is. Friends, do you have a hope in heaven? If you're a Christian, you do. You have a hope that is out of this world's reach, a, a hope of a new world where there is no pain, no sickness, no violence, a hope of a world where there is no sin, a hope of a world that is free from wickedness, where there is vindication from wickedness, a hope of reward for righteousness, a hope of relief and rest from sorrow, a hope of a world where God walks with you side by side, a hope of a world where no one will ever die. Beloved, a hope where you will see your crucified Savior and you will be like him. Invincible, whole, holy, happy, reigning. Friends, have you heard of this hope? The Colossians had. It's funny, Paul says, I heard about you Colossians, but y'all heard about this hope. Verse 5, look with me. Paul writes, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth. Friends, what's the word of truth? Verse 5, Paul writes, the gospel. The gospel, the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the salvation it ensures for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And what does the gospel do? Verse 6, it comes to you. You don't reach up and go get it. No, it comes to you. Someone's got to tell you. Paul writes, and it bears fruit in the whole world. And not only in the whole world, but also in the whole church, verse 6 says. Paul writes, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing as it, the gospel, also does among y'all since the day you heard it, the gospel, and understood the grace of God and truth. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, in the church, the main bodily organ is the ear. Did you see Paul said in verse 5, the people had heard about their hope in heaven. Friends, with everything we could say week after week from this pulpit, amid wars overseas and gang violence in our neighborhood, beloved, this gospel... This good news is the best news we need to hear. And so did the Colossians. 
Last Sunday, uh, Cam talked so powerfully about how we today have the privilege of reading the Word. But in Paul's time, most people uh, couldn't read. His letter uh, would have been read aloud to a church by a messenger. Uh, Presumably here, it's read by Timothy, who was Paul's protege. That's why he's mentioned in that greeting in verse 1. Uh, Maybe Timothy was a scribe for Paul until the end of the letter where Paul signs off. Uh, Either way, Timothy may very well have carried Paul's handwritten words. Friends, in Paul's time, it was common that if a prisoner wrote a letter, they'd have it delivered by a personal representative, one like Timothy. But all that to say, the gospel was something that had to be taught Heard, learned, and so in verse 7, Paul mentions one of the Colossians' teachers, Epaphras, a beloved fellow servant. Notice the affection in that job title, a beloved fellow servant. Epaphras and Paul aren't just colleagues. They're family. Church staff, Hillary, Dustin, Greg, all of you. The reason I tell y'all I love you is because I do. Because you're a faithful minister for God on this church's behalf. Just as Epaphras was for the Colossians. And it seems like Epaphras was the one who told Paul about the Colossians. Uh, Did you see this in verse 8? Paul writes, He, Epaphras, has made known to us, presumably him and Timothy, your, the Colossians, love in the Spirit. Friends, in this first section of the letter, Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This passage is about one God who is love. And so his church is filled with love. In the first section of the letter, Paul mentions love twice, once in verse 4 and here again in verse 8. Though he talks about faith and hope, Paul implies what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that the greatest of Christian virtues... Is love. Seems like when Epaphras showed up to Paul, he had testimony after testimony of how the church was loving one another. And if I had more time, I would share testimony after testimony about how y'all ICC love one another. And it's been so clear to me who just lost my mother that when Jesse Hoyer drops off a meal and a bomb dessert, and when Hattie and Evie and Bailey Fordham send me handwritten cards, when y'all buy us groceries, friends, it's so clear that y'all love me even though I'm new here because that's what we do here at ICC. Just like any Christian church, we love one another. Friends, what does the gospel do? It produces love. It turns sinners into lovers, terrorists into thinkers, 
Did you see Paul, instead of persecuting God, is now thanking him for all the good that's going on in the church? Brothers and sisters, do you thank God for the church? Do you know our church well enough to even thank God for stuff in it? Friends, get to know us. If you're here and you've seen a lot of hypocrisy in churches you know, I want to say I'm sorry for that, truly. But I also want to encourage you to not give up on the church. Hypocrisy isn't the whole story. It's not even the headline. My friend, you've eaten at a bad restaurant before, I'm sure, right? Let me ask you, did that bad experience make you give up on eating out altogether? I bet it didn't. I bet you've tried a different restaurant or two since. My friend, in the same way, don't let a bad church experience turn you off from the entire church because this place is a world of love. The gospel turns sinners into lovers, lovers of God, of people, of neighbor, of each other. Bless the Lord. Now, Paul thanks the Lord for all the gospel has done and is doing, but his prayer doesn't stop there. He goes on to pray some more, and this brings us to our second point, our second question. What should we do? In light of what the gospel does, what should we do? Question number two, what should we do? This point will cover verses 9 to 14. Uh, Beloved, we've seen what the gospel does, but what do gospel people, uh, people who believe the gospel, what should we do? Paul tells us, but not directly. Instead of just saying, do this. Paul asks God to do this in us and through us. He asks God that we would bear fruit. Paul prays. From the day he had heard of the Colossians, he prayed. He says, look with me in verse 9, that he and his team had not ceased to pray. Y'all remember what Melissa read in 1 Samuel, how Samuel the prophet said to God's people, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for y'all. Beloved, that's the heart of Paul. There's the heart of my mother. I remember one day it clicked for me that my mom was always praying for me. And she texted me, hey, I'm praying for you. So one day I thanked her. It was a random day. I don't remember the date. I just said, Mom, thank you for praying for me so much. Her response. She quoted Samuel, far be it from me, Isaac, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. She took her prophetic role in my life that seriously. Moms, 
I am so encouraged by those of you who are praying for your little kiddos. Keep doing that. You have no idea how powerful a couple decades of prayer, however short, however confused, however sleep-deprived they may be, those prayers over the years can move mountains. Friends, let's pray for each other. This is why almost every day, uh, I say almost because I'm not perfect and I don't do it every day, but beloved, it's this heart of prayer that makes me grab my handy-dandy ICC updated prayer calendar, which we'll link to in tomorrow's newsletter, and pray through it. So today is the 13th, so I prayed for Steve and Courtney Isaac, Lex and Emily Ivy, Aaron and Abby Gillette, Hunter and Natalie Jewett, and Chris Johnson. Beloved, in this church, we know your names. We're going to the throne on behalf of you. You can be assured if you join this church, people you don't even know are praying for you. That was all free and I lost my place. Um, Here we go. Friends, one of the main reasons we want a church directory, ah, it's not so we can be big brother and creep on you. It's so we can know who to pray for. So church members, I hope you've got an email uh, regarding that directory. Please fill it out. Please fill it out. After all, we ought not to cease praying for each other. But what does Paul pray for? Let's just read it again. Verse 9. He asked that the Colossians may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, he asked that the people of God would know the will of God so that their lives could please their God. Friends, there is a way to live that pleases God. And I hope you're asking yourself, what is that way? I want to live that way. What what is that way? College students, I know you're in a season of life where you're asking, what does God want me to do with my life? Does he want me to be an engineer, an economist, a doctor? And that's a fine question to ask. It's a question God will eventually answer through your desires and through your opportunities. But just remember that God's will for your life is actually much bigger and more basic than what you do for a paycheck. College students, I'm so encouraged by y'all who are showing up to day three asking, how can I glorify God with my life? Beloved, how can we please the Lord with our lives? What is a life worthy of God? Verse 10 answers saying, a life that bears fruit. When it talks about bearing fruit, all the Bible means is we produce evidence of saving faith. Friends, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Brothers and sisters, what would God have us do? He would have us bear fruit in every good work. What would God have us do? Verse 10, he would have us increase in the knowledge of God. 
Friends, the goal of the Christian life is to know God and to enjoy him. So keep coming to church. Keep hearing. Keep reading your Bible. God would have us bear fruit. He would have us increase in the knowledge of him. Verse 11, he'd have us be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love this. God doesn't say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, he says, let me strengthen you. Take my glorious might so that you might endure with patience and with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Friends, do you see how God's will for us is to receive his work in us? His work for us. We don't qualify ourselves for the saints in light. God does the qualifying. We don't make it through trials by our own strength. He does the strengthening. We do the asking. We do the limping. As he, as our call to worship said, carries us. Friends, some of y'all are here looking for God to do some big miraculous thing in your life. But if you're enduring in the faith, if you're patiently waiting on God, if you're joyfully persevering through trials, if you're thankful to God, if you're motivated by your inheritance in heaven, please realize that's God's work in you. You don't have to wait for a miracle. You are the miracle. I mean, think about it. Little old you believes in him. And you keep believing in him and thanking him even when the world gives you every reason not to. You, beloved, are a living testimony of God's grace, of his work of his glorious might. Friends, I think this passage should convict any of us who have people in our lives who we would like to see change. It should challenge those of us who would like to see someone else grow. And notice that Paul doesn't just bark orders. He doesn't say increase in the knowledge of God, be strong, be patient. Of course, in other letters, he gives exhortations like that. But Paul also more fundamentally prays that God would bring about the change in people. To get someone to change, Paul realizes that there's something even more powerful to appeal to than the feeble human will. We can appeal to the throne that runs the universe. Friends, you want to see someone change, pray for them. Not to just check off the box to say you prayed for them. Pray that God would actually change them. Pray hoping that he would. Pray without ceasing. Pray with thanksgiving. And I know that's really hard to do. It's really hard to keep praying for the same thing for a long time. That's why we need God's help to endure. 
to be patient, to be joyful, to be thankful. Friends, these virtues seem so simple and yet they are so hard to carry out. It's hard to keep praying for the same thing for a long time. I love what the 21st century theologian Cam Pugh said. He said, time has a way of testing the genuineness of our desires. Amen. Beloved, because it's really hard to persevere through the hardships of the Christian life, friends, that's why Paul prays God might work in us. We can't do it on our own. That's why he reminds us of God's work for us. Do you you remember that repetition of the gospel in verses 13 and 14? Let me read them again. Paul closes this introduction saying, verse 13, read with me. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, earlier I said this text is a thank you card. It's also a rehearsal. Beloved, we never, never, never outgrow our need to hear the gospel. We can grow deeper into the gospel, but never out of it. Here Paul reminds us of God's great work, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. But how? How is it we have redemption? How is it that our sins have been forgiven? Here's the answer in three words, three crucial words, faith in substitution. Faith in substitution. You see, friends, the reality is before we trusted in Christ, we did not live lives worthy of the Lord. But we lived lives fully displeasing to him. We sinned against him. We rebelled. Instead of increasing in the knowledge of God, we closed our minds to God. Instead of relying on his strength, we relied on ourselves. Instead of waiting on him patiently with joy, we cursed him with frustration and took matters into our own hands. And so we, like all people, deserved God's righteous wrath. His judgment as we fumbled around, blinded by our sin in the domain of darkness. But God sent a light into the world. His son, Jesus Christ, who came to work against the darkness. He lived a perfect life, the life you and I should have lived. And yet he was crucified murdered. But why? Why did Jesus have to die? Friends, Jesus died to step in and take the judgment we should have received from God. 
He died in our place. He substituted himself for us. The theologian John Stott said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That quote is so good. I can say it because I didn't originally say it. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. But friends, Jesus didn't just die for us. He was raised for us. Three days later, Easter is coming up. And make no mistake, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because three days after he was murdered, Jesus got up from the dead. And now he offers forgiveness of sins to anyone. Anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Jesus now qualifies anyone for forgiveness who says, I don't have the money in my account to satisfy the debt I owe God. Jesus, will you pay it for me? And he happily says, beloved, yes, yes, let me pick up the tab. I got it. I got it. I got it. Friends, the demand of your sin could never deplete the supply of God's grace. Unlike Amazon or UPS, friend, the true God always delivers. He always saves sinners. That's why we bless him. That's why we thank him. That's why in these closing verses, Paul spoke, his, Paul spoke about this God as the delivering God who brings people out of bondage of sin, the transferring God who takes his people from the domain of darkness and places them into the kingdom of light, the redeeming God who purchases back his own from the forces of darkness, the forgiving God who does not count our sin against us because he counted them against his own beloved son, Jesus, the king of love. The beloved king, we trust in him who took our place. Friends, this is the word of truth we so desperately need. The gospel, faith in substitution. Faith in Jesus, the friend and substitute of sinners. Turn from your sins. Trust in him today. That's what my mom did. I remember reading her handwritten funeral instructions. She wrote the instructions so clearly. By her own hand, she wrote, at my funeral, preach a gospel message. That is her legacy. Charles Spurgeon said, never could any man estimate what he owes to a godly mother. Friends, Jan Adams knew that Jesus is the qualifier, the deliverer, the transferer, the redeemer, the forgiver, the king who is loved and the king of love. He was supreme to her. Is he supreme to you? Is he sufficient for you? Let's pray. Father, we pray to you, recognizing that you have delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we pray for anyone who does not know the forgiveness of sins, that they would come to know you. Lord, only you can do this work, so we pray that you would do that work. Lord, we pray that that you continue to work in us, that we might continue to bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name.